All right, we'll be in 1 John again. 1 John chapter 3. Lord willing, we'll get, we'll go through the end of the chapter. I feel like I bit off more than I can chew, but it didn't seem to be a great place to stop. And so we'll, we'll just um, do what we can here. Last time we considered the sword of love that the Father has given us in that he's made us his sons or his children and how the world doesn't know us or recognize us as the children of God because they don't know the Father or his Son, Jesus Christ. We looked at how the children of God who have the hope of Christ's appearing and of being changed to be like him at that time in the first resurrection Those who have this hope purify themselves. They live in a pure, chaste, sanctified way now in this life. John said that those who abide in Christ do not live in sin. They don't practice sin. Not that they're without sin, but they don't live in it. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil and to free us or loose us from the power of sin. He delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1.13. By way of contrast, and John does this all through his epistle, those who do practice sin are of the devil. We close with verse 10 where John said that both types of people are made apparent at least to the children of God. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And why is that? God has not affected that change in them. They haven't been made sons of God. Their sins have not been taken away. They have not been loosed from the power of the devil. And that seed, mentioned in verse 9, that new principle of life and new nature, I believe that's correct, has not been implanted or created in them. They're still in darkness. I'd like to go back to verse 1 and mention something that I noticed. The underlying Greek word for behold is the same as ye know or we know uh, most of the time in, the, in the, this chapter or in the book. And it means to see. When John uses these phrases... It means that we can see these things. Brethren, we're not in darkness any longer. And because of that, these things are apparent to us. And I really enjoyed this. Guess how many times John uses that word in this epistle? 17 times. Which is the number for victory. We have the victory through Jesus Christ, and we've overcome the world and the wicked one, as we saw in chapter 2. John is writing to those who have life. They're in the light and they can see. He ended verse 10 by saying that the one who isn't loving his brother is not born of God. And we'll pick up with that thought this evening, starting at verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In chapter 2, verse 7 John said that they had heard this word from the beginning. This message or command had existed from the beginning, going back even to Cain and Abel. 
And it had been related to them from the time that uh, it had been related to these that John is writing to from the time that they had first trusted in Christ and had begun to follow him. Jesus said this in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. He said that all men would know that they were his disciples by the way they loved one another. So though the world does not recognize us as what we're going to be, as the sons of God, as we saw in our last lesson, they can tell that we are followers of Christ by the love that we have for one another. In John 15, verses 12 through 14, he said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Lord willing, we're going to consider what it means, at least in part, to lay down our lives for the brethren in this lesson. Our Lord Jesus certainly laid his life down for us, but was it only by his death, or didn't he lay his life down through his entire ministry? And we're to walk as he walked. We consider that in chapter 2. How how can we really show our love to one another? Is it by greeting one another when we meet? Sure. Is it by being caring, courteous, considerate, mindful of how we're affecting others by what we say and do? Yes. Yes. Is it by saying I love you every time we see one another? I'm not sure that's necessary, though it's good to express that from time to time, and we should show some affection for one another. I mean, do we just come in and kind of grunt or choke out a hello and go to our seat, sit through the service, and then make our exit as quickly as possible? I don't think any of us do that, but that does happen in in some places. Maybe we do it from time to time going through a rough patch. But do we make any effort to get to know others in the membership, in the body? Do we express care and interest in what's going on in their lives? All of these things together begin to demonstrate or prove that we have love for one another. But how do we really prove that we have love for one another? We dealt with some of this in chapter 2, Let's uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I was amazed that this came up on Sunday. I already had this part in my notes. What a great passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, it means being diligent, laboring, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a lot packed into those three verses. Notice some of the words mentioned in verse 2. Sounds like the fruit of the Spirit to me. We cannot walk in the flesh 
Giving in to the way the flesh wants to respond naturally to difficulties, disagreements, wrongs, many times misunderstandings. We cannot give in to the flesh when encountering those things and at the same time endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. It just won't work. The two are at odds with one another. And so what do we do? By the grace of God, we must mortify the flesh, bring our body into subjection, perhaps bite our tongue, watch our facial expressions, control our spirit, keep from getting angry, humble ourselves and forbear. And these two things will help us in this. First, to consider how gracious, forbearing, and merciful God has been to us. And second, remembering and acknowledging that we also offend others in many things, as James 3.2 says, so that we have need of others being long-suffering and forbearing with us so much of the time. As a side note, I'd like to point out that this long-suffering and forbearing doesn't involve compromising the truth. That's not love for the Lord or for our brother. We should be drawing closer together around the truth, becoming more and more united. Look at verses, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 16. He says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. There's a lot in that as well. Now getting back to what it means to love one another, skip down to verse 31 of Ephesians 4. And we'll read through verse 2 of chapter 5. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor." If we will be diligent to be united around the truths of Christ, and if we'll be at peace with one another, being lowly, meek, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, then there will be a bond between us that is unmatched in the world. It's called charity, which Paul calls the bond of perfectness in Colossians 3.14. Now we're walking as Christ walked. Now in verse 12, back in... 1 John chapter 3, John contrasts the message that we've heard from the beginning to love one another with the first person born into this world who was also the first murderer. 
He ended verse 11 saying, We should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Genesis 4 tells us how Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord and how God had respect. He regarded or looked on Abel's offering, but had no regard for Cain's. And how Cain was very wroth. He was incensed. He was angry when God didn't have respect to his offering. He was angry at God, but also at his brother Abel. And that anger, and I think jealousy, turned into hatred, which led to murder. And why did he hate him? Because his brother's works were righteous and showed that Abel was accepted with God. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. Often the unbelieving in the world see us serving God, living for Christ, and they see the joy and peace and assurance we have that we're accepted by God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. And though we have not wronged them, we may be treating them very well, but they hate us. God's people have experienced this since the time of Abel. And so John says in verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Don't wonder. Don't think it strange. Don't be puzzled when the world hates you. This enmity has existed since the beginning, as we saw with Cain and Abel. David said in Psalm 35, 19, that he was hated without a cause. And he certainly was by Saul and others but this was also prophetic, speaking of Christ. In Psalm 35, 19, the one I just mentioned, David says, Let not them that are mine enemies wrongfully rejoice over me, neither let them wink with the eye that hate me without a cause. The Lord Jesus referred to this in John 15. Let's look at that. Um, John 15, verses 17 through 25. These things I command you that you love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father." But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So as John said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The Lord told us that it would be this way. Now back in uh, verse 14, John says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Brethren. 
In chapter 2, John contrasted light and darkness. Now he contrasts life and death. He says, we know, we have confidence, we have assurance that we have passed from death unto life. The underlying Greek word for we have passed is usually translated as departed. So you could say, we know that we have departed from death and have gone over to life because we love the brethren. Our love may be weak. It is certainly imperfect. And it gets cold and needs stirring up constantly. But we do love the brethren, right? He says, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Those who are loving their brethren know that they have life. The one who is not loving his brother abides in death. He hasn't departed from death like the one in the first part of the verse who loves his brother. Now verse 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. The one who is hating his brother, he continues in that hatred and will not turn from it. A person like this is a murderer. Remember, we looked at that before. Uh, Hatred, you could define it as murder without opportunity. And John says that we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's obvious. Hatred for the children of God is in direct opposition to the love of God. The two are as incompatible as light and darkness, or life and death. John will say in the next chapter, in uh, verse 20, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Now John continues in verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. By this we have known, and still know and understand the love of God. Notice that he says that God laid down his life for us. Here's another proof of the deity of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Let's take just a minute to look at two other verses that say uh, something similar. I think I have three, actually. Um, I think these are great to mark in your Bible. You're going to be very familiar with the first one. Matthew one twenty three. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And then lastly, look at uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is a very interesting one. Uh, Paul, speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. I like to mark those down, to be uh, familiar with those. Um, the last part of verse 16, back in 1 John chapter 3. He said, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
He laid down his life for us and we ought. And the word for ought can be translated as indebted. I thought that was very interesting. We are indebted because of what Christ has done for us to lay down our lives for one another. Paul says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now we ought to love everyone. But he's speaking to the people of God, so this especially deals with them and their dealings with one another. We can never love one another so much that we can stop loving. I said something like this back when we looked at Romans 13 last year, but it's like it's a debt that we can never pay off. Now getting back to laying our lives down for the brethren, what does that mean? Isn't this lovingly putting others before ourselves? We're pretty self-centered and selfish naturally. But the Spirit of God works in us to apply the truths and commands that we hear and that we're reminded of constantly so that we can put away our self-centeredness and consider others like we talked about uh, when we read from Ephesians 4 and 5. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to walk as he walked. Referring back to chapter 2, verse 6. So we do the same for our brethren, giving of our time, care, prayers, and substance, but if necessary, even risking or laying down our very lives for them. Look at Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. He says, uh, Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their, their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Priscilla and Aquila had evidently risked their lives for Paul. Perhaps at Corinth, when the Jews had made that insurrection against Paul and had beaten Sosthenes, as we saw in another lesson recently. In Acts chapter 15, Verses 25 and 26, the church at Jerusalem wrote letters to the Gentile churches that they sent with uh, Paul and Barnabas and a couple of other brethren. And they said, It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives. That means they had given them up for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul and Barnabas had not lost their lives at this point, But they were willing and they had certainly risked them in order to preach the gospel and to minister to the saints. I just want to look at one more in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Paul speaking again said, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but you are messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, 
to supply your lack of service toward me. This man had labored with Paul and ministered to him to the point of being sick and near death. This brother knew what it was to lay his life down for the brethren. Now back in 1 John, verse 17. So he just told us that we, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But he says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If we understand or perceive God's love for us, and we have his love within us, and we know that we ought to go so far as to actually give up our lives for one another, then shouldn't we be willing to part with some of our substance when we see another brother in need? This is so much less than giving up our life. So John asks in so many words, How is it possible that the love of God is abiding in a person who shuts up any compassion within them? Just like we would lock something away in a closet. Or like God will shut up the rain in the heavens and keep it from coming down. How is it possible that the love of God is abiding in a person who shuts up any compassion within them and refuses to help their brother? Something is terribly wrong. This one claims to love God and have love for his, brother, his brethren, but when put to the test, it's shown that this one is just a talker. His words are empty and meaningless. So John says in verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John beseeches them here again as dear ones, little children, and exhorts them not to act this way. I think it's possible for the children of God to fail in this aspect of Christian living to a point, just like we can in any other area. So John warns against it. Don't love in word only. Shutting up your love and compassion when the time comes to put it into action, but rather let love flow freely. Let our words be proved to be true by our deeds. And he says, and hereby, by this, we know that we're of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If we'll do this, then we'll know, we'll perceive that we're of the truth, and we will persuade our hearts that we truly know God and that we're loved by him. Do you want more assurance? Follow Christ's example and keep his commandments and love one another. Love for one another is sure evidence that we have passed from death into life. Remember verse 14 we just looked at? We know that we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. So there is a way for us to assure our hearts before him. Verse 20, he says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. If our heart finds fault with us concerning the matter of loving our brethren, how much more will God, the righteous judge, find fault if we refuse to turn from this sinful behavior, which is so contrary to the law of Christ? 
There are differing views on what John is communicating in this verse, but I think the point of what John is saying here is that we should not brush off or ignore the condemnation that arises in our hearts because of our failure to walk according to Christ's command to love. He says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. So on the other hand, in contrast to the previous verse, if our heart doesn't find fault with us regarding loving our brethren in deed and in truth, then we have confidence toward God. We have boldness or assurance of our sonship, and we can come to him for grace to help us continue. Especially when it becomes difficult to exercise love as we are indebted to do as we considered earlier. And also as we desire. Right? We have this desire implanted in us when we're born of God. So we can come to our Father boldly, knowing our great need and understanding our inability to love as we should. I cannot do it in my own strength. I cannot do it on my own. Hebrews 4.16, you all know this one. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In verse 22, he says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I pulled a couple of verses to look at and then um, moved on and never got back to this. But the Lord told us in Matthew 21, 22, And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. In John fifteen sixteen, he said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. And then in a couple of chapters here, 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, he says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If we come to him asking for help, asking for grace, asking for the things that we need, the things that he's told us to ask for in his word, he's going to give them to us. No question about it. Verse 23, we're almost finished. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. The command to repent and believe the gospel was preached by John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus, and the apostles, and we continue to preach that same message. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. John 3.16-18 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then one more, Acts 17, 30, 30 and 31, where Paul is speaking to those on Mars Hill. 
breaking in the middle of the verse. But now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man, speaking of Christ, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he raised them from the dead. But John is writing to disciples, right? They had believed on Christ and were believing and would continue to believe, trusting in him for life, resting in his finished work, and depending on him to continue to work in them. And it's the same with all of God's children. And then he adds it again that we should love one another. As he's been reminding them so far in this epistle and, and he'll continue to do through the end of the letter. Now verse 24, last, last verse of the chapter. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. The one that is continuing to keep his commands, I think specifically referring to the ones he mentioned in the previous verse, believing on Christ and loving one another, this one abides in Christ, and Christ dwells in him. And we know, that is, we have assurance that he continues to abide in us because we have his spirit. And we hear, understand, keep, and continue in the truths and commandments of Christ. 